0: Welcome everyone. We'll have small groups later in the evening. And before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about um, the what we could call the Four Noble Truths of Relating and thinking about this path in terms of what we've been reflecting on these past five weeks now, this being week six. And to think about why relating, relating wisely in terms of sila, samadhi, panya. So sila is this reverence for life or this value of non-harming. So how does that look? How does that manifest in terms of our relationships, our ways of relating? What is that steadiness of samadhi? How does that look or manifest in our relationships and wisdom? How does that look in terms of our relationships? And in all these ways that we're reflecting, you know, we're trying to have a sense of, you know, whatever word you want to use, whether you use the word intimacy or freely giving, freely receiving or wholesome relating, you know, relating with kindness or a reciprocal relationship a give-and-take relationship. So however we talk about a good relationship, a wholesome relationship, there are a couple sort of axis, axes that we want to think about, like different kinds of relationships. So next week, the last two weeks, we'll we'll look in uh, particular ways at those challenging areas, like relationships that involve sexual energy, and relationships that involve power differentials, and relationships that activate cultural conditioning around differences. And uh, so already we're talking about those things, but we'll do that in more specific ways in the last two weeks. But even so, there are a lot of different relationships. So that's one of the ways to understand the experience of freedom in relationships and the experience of suffering in relationships, like how that manifests in friendships where there's maybe not so much of a power differential. Or how does it manifest when I'm the parent and I'm relating to my child, or I'm the child and I'm relating to my parent, or I'm the worker relating to my boss, or I'm the supervisor relating to somebody I supervise. All those different kinds of relationships, close relationships, less close, more neutral, you know, just an acquaintance, not somebody we have a lot of history with. What does the circle of giving, freely giving and receiving in a moment of relating look like in those different places? Because there's something about looking at a lot of, looking at the same thing in a lot of different places where we begin to understand more what that thing is. So, for example, with uh, freedom in relationships. So that's the thing we're looking at. So if we look at moments of being free when relating to another being, but in different kinds of relationships, well, what is the similarity in all those experiences of freedom in those different moments with different relationships? What is the... Uh, underlined or the consistent truth or the consistent quality that was there in those different moments of feeling free. Freely receiving, not afraid to be vulnerable or not afraid to be exposed or not afraid to be touched by that dynamic of relating to a group or an, an individual. And not Finding it, this isn't so much you or me doing it, but finding that the heart's responding. That's the generosity. Doesn't mean that the way the heart is responding is perfectly skillful, but that willingness to give, to show up, to respond, to speak up, to be close. Because there's no learning if we don't have that circle, right? It's like, we have to be in that cauldron, you know, in that churning whatever was that line from James Taylor's song Churning Burning Funk right? Mudslide Slim. Churning burning urn of funk or something like that. It's not quite right, but it's close. But that's kind of how it is for us when we're in that in relationship. Because if we're really in that moment or those moments of relating, it should feel uncertain. right? It can't be defined or captured. We've talked about how quickly in any sort of relationship, in any interaction, how quickly we can go from the status quo where we're all playing, you and I are playing according to the rules of how we're supposed to be relating to something opening up or something Dropping out and there we are to human beings in the truth of uncertainty and a real moment of intimacy. And either, you know, fear will win the day and we'll run from it. Or if we're fortunate, you know, there will be some moments of trusting it and that moment blossoming. And what the heart realizes is That um, exposure, although I guess scary, doesn't mean it's harmful or dangerous. And we, we begin to understand something about life, like we have this choice to live with certainty and all the costs that come with how we, in certain ways, define our moments of experience, our moments of relating, or... We can learn to trust putting, releasing that certainty. And I I really recommend that we experiment with this in places that are safe, like when you go home and take a few minutes with your pet. And just notice the difference between falling into established routines and sort of letting those, not so much you can't do the same thing, it's more of an inner state. Where you're're on some kind of automatic pilot, and then with friends, and we don't have to say anything. we don't have to tell the person, okay, I'm gonna be vulnerable now. <laughs> I'm gonna drop all the edifices and you know and be real for a moment with you, so be prepared <laughs> It's just a to kind of play with it, and we can do that in our small groups tonight, and we can do it right now, of course, too, and um, that the small groups sort of are more unique experience for that. Often it happens when we catch each other's eyes, you know, how quickly the energy can build when you're looking at somebody's eyes. And just like, what is that fear of self-consciousness? And, you know, some people, th- this is not new discovery. We've all, I hope, figured this out, that this can be a scary thing. And, uh, some teachers, you know, they actually have exercises where you sit in front of a person and you sort of gaze in their eyes. And in the Zen tradition, you know, in Dokusan, when they have interviews with the teacher, you know, it's all very formal. But then they, you know, the whole structure is very formal. But then in that particular ritual, you sit very close, generally cross-legged, on the floor. But, you know, your knees are just a couple inches from the teacher's knees. So your head, you know, maybe 18 inches, eyes to eyes, facing. (laughs) So, I'm not sure how We do this, you know, each of us, we have to figure out how to play with this. I think play is a good word, because generally if we make it a should, then we sort of miss the point. And we have to, uh, want to be interested in that, that kind of exposure. And it helps us understand, you know, some of these words that we see or use a lot in relationships like commitment. On some, hopefully intuitive level, we understand there's something about commitment that's important. But often then we misunderstand or we misuse the concept of commitment to, like, we're committed to this way of being together. Like I'll be this way, and you have to be that way, and that's what we've agreed to. That's our commitment. I mean in simple terms, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. Let's commit to being nice to each other. And it's not like that's bad or or anything, but when and i my wife and I, when we were about to get married and we were thinking about what sort of vows we wanted to speak to each other, you know we we tried to understand that, like, what is commitment? What are we committing to? And somehow trying to name that edge or that place of vulnerability, uncertainty, which is really a powerful place. It's not a place of weakness just because we're vulnerable. To be vulnerable, you know, to realize that we don't know is a real place of power and strength. That's such a relief to be able to acknowledge that we don't know. And, you know, if we can catch it, it is such a burden to be interacting, relating to people uh, from a place of thinking we know or thinking, being certain about like what's happening, what the relationship is or what it isn't. Every time one of those old painful places gets stirred up, you know, those times of relating to someone that left uh, a wound in our hearts. I'm assuming we all have those places. (laughs) And uh, it's so interesting when they come to mind to see, to notice how my mind, uh, it wants to use some description, some idea or picture of what happened back then or what the truth is of that, you know, particular difficult relationship or difficult interaction. It wants to capture it in a way, even in a, maybe a very painful story that I tell myself, but at least it has a shape, it has a form, and just learning to not to say no to that, you know, to understand I mean there is that's on some relative level there's some truth. That that's the actual story I tell myself, I tend to tell myself when that relationship comes to mind. I mean that's what that is. So we don't want to say no to that because it's relevant on that level. That is the story the mind tends to tell itself about that. But, so that can either be a place to get stuck, or it can be a doorway that we can walk through, which is into that, whatever that feels like, which is very alive and very here and now. So, either the story, the idea, this happened, this is, you know, what this person was going through, or this is how I think that person was off, or this is how I think I was off, to this is what's alive and real, this is what's actually moving, and we can get into that cycle of freely giving and freely receiving, or we can realize moments of freedom. Freedom is always a movement. It's always a free movement, an unrestrictedness in our heart and mind, the mind not being sticky, not clinging to ideas or fixed notions about things not defining ourselves or another. So, you know, one of the things I said last week in our small groups tonight, we might just reflect, you know, with the other people in our small group about moments of feeling, experiencing freedom in relationship, in In moments of relating to another or a group of people, group of other beings, doesn't even need to be human beings, I suppose, and moments of not feeling free in moments of relating. And so we have that access of different kinds of relationships you can draw on, you know, so they're not all the same. And some areas in our lives may be more interesting, more painful, more. More enlivening and joyful and free than others. So you can sort of think about that. You can think about relationships where there's a sense of commitment and relationships where there aren't and like what are moments of freedom in relationships where there isn't a real commitment, like someone you just happen to have an interaction with at the store. So there's no ongoing obligation with this person or sense of responsibility for this person. Versus somebody you're in a, you know, deeply connected to, karmically or whatever, married to or whatever it might be. So there's a real sense. And look at, in terms of moments of freedom and moments of suffering in relationships, moments of intimacy, moments of feeling so distant or blocked off, like the question of dependency or what are my needs? It's such an interesting question in relationships to be asking because we tend to have, like so much in life, we tend to address these very important issues like needs and the tendency to be dependent versus independent. We tend to address it in very superficial ways, like either totally convinced that being dependent is appropriate, being demanding, being needy is appropriate, or Swinging to the opposite, like I shouldn't be needy at all, I should be completely independent, so that's a place to explore. so as you have ideas or memories, I should say of experiences, relationships that felt free, that didn't feel free, then in terms of unpacking them or understanding them, and you can do that right now as I'm thinking or as I'm speaking so how does commitment or dependency or what sort of needs were going on for me? And I wonder what sort of needs were going on for the other person. What were the needs at play there? And how were our minds relating to those needs? Was I being dismissive of my needs or the other person's needs? Well, yeah, you had those needs, but you should grow up. You don't need to have those needs or that be dependent on that, you know? Or were we having a different relationship to needs? You know, like feeling like, no, those are, I I can't be happy without this need being met. This has to be met. I demand it or I'm demanding it from life or I'm demanding it from you. You owe this to me. And of course, we have needs at different levels. We have, I guess you could say, social needs. Some of those are probably genetic. A lot of those are cultural, like they've been culturally conditioned to need certain things from relationships. You know, we have the... (laughs) I guess you could say the need to learn. I don't know if you'd call it a need, but sort of a uh, an appreciation of the need to be engaged, the need to connect, as a way of understanding our own heart, or more specifically, understanding how to be free. Like in a way, we have to connect, we have to engage, we have to be in relationship in order to understand how we separate ourselves out how we construct the experience of being alienated and being apart and being afraid being unloved so instead of like I'm in relationship in order for you to address and solve that pain I'm in relationship in order to understand it in order to be wiser about it. So I mentioned the article last week, maybe some of you had time to read it, um, where Susan Piver, I'm not sure how she's pronounces Piver, or probably Piver, P-I-V-E-R, Buddhism in Relationships, I remember Gregory Kramer, who uh, started the Insight Dialogue uh, trainings around the country, now a number of people, including Amitana Tanasanti, who was just here and leading the TCBC retreat. She um, does a lot of that Insight Dialogue work and now teaches it, as well as having done it in the past herself. But he has a, a phrase, I think he says, uh, in terms of the first noble truth, there is interrelation, interrelational suffering which is obvious, right? The heart gets tight in relationship. And even in disconnecting, we get tight about that too. And uh, this woman in her article, she says relationships are deeply uncomfortable. And she goes on, whether it's your first date or 10th anniversary, There is simply an enormous amount of discomfort involved in relationships. We are afraid of being hurt, disappointed, overtaxed, ignored. The interesting part is that all of these things happen. This is just the way it is, even in happy relationships. The thing no one tells you is that it's impossible to stabilize a relationship. And then she goes on to liken it to a sandstorm. You know, sometimes it settles down, but it's often not easy to see and stingy. (laughs) Ends this section by saying, the bad news is you never get to where you thought you were going. You get somewhere else instead. The good news is that there's basically no way to have a boring relationship (laughs) And you know the second noble truth that the Buddha taught, so the first is there is dukkha. There is the basic uneasiness of the heart that we find even in good relationships or even when things are going well in our life, the heart's uneasy because it might change or it's not going to last or we want it to even be better. And then the second noble truth, truth as the Buddha teaches is there is suffering and there is a cause to it. It doesn't just happen magically. There are causes and conditions that support the experience of suffering, stress. And when those causes and conditions aren't there, they disappear. So in terms of the stress that arises in relationship, relationships are uncomfortable. There is dukkha in relationships. And there's a cause. She says, discomfort comes from trying to make the relationships comfortable. That's the wrong, right? It's always about wrong view. We imagine, this is the wrong view, we imagine that relationships are here in our lives to make our existential pain, uneasiness go away. If only we could create a healthy enough community at Common Ground that I would feel so held, so included in the community that I wouldn't feel bad anymore. Or if only my, you know, my partner and I had such a wonderful relationship, then all of my neurotic uneasiness would go away. Or if only my parents loved me the way that I need to be loved, that would go away. And on and on like that. If only this cashier would show up and do her job or his job, you know, then I'd be okay. So we we do this in very superficial ways, even with our cats and dogs. You know, I just want you to sit on my lap and cuddle with me. (laughs) Discomfort comes from trying to make the relationships comfortable. I'll just read a little what she says here in the Second Noble Truth. At the root of the discomfort is the wish that it wouldn't be uncomfortable. That we could eventually find the right person and relax. But the truth is that when you do find the or a right person, it's anything but relaxing. Your neurosis, their neurosis, all the hopes and fears you've ever had about the love, about love flood your situation. Whether you bargained for it or not, you get introduced to your deepest self while someone else is trying to introduce you to their deepest self. It get, it can get very confusing. But instead of wasting time trying to make it not confusing, better to dive right in, this is the commitment part, and be really nice to each other as you consider the root of your own and his or her own suffering, confusion. And then she adds in parentheses, acting nice to each other in the midst of confusion is love. And then in the second little thing in parentheses, acting nice doesn't always mean all sweet and demur. (laughs) So then the third noble truth, as the Buddha teaches it, first is there is dukkha. And so in terms of relationships, relationships are uncomfortable. They're difficult. There's pain involved in relating and being in relationship. And when we look carefully with a balanced, steady attention, we see that the Uneasiness in relationship comes because we have this wrong view. We want the relationship to take care of some inner pain in a way that relationships can never take care of. That's not what relationships are about. It's the same with Dhamma, the way it is, the world as it is. Same with relationships. They're there to help us understand the underlying nature of how suffering comes and how it goes away. They're here to teach us something. So the second noble truth, discomfort comes from trying, discomfort comes from trying to make the relationships comfortable. So then we get a sense of what the third noble truth is. There is an end to the relational suffering we experience, to the uneasiness we have in relationships when we're no longer expecting them to eliminate our discomfort. So we're not misusing our relationships to fix something, to make something go away, to make me happy. I think in one of her other articles that I have in our resource page, um, one of the articles, I forget the title, but written by the same author, Piper Susan Piver, is... Uh, She's talking about—I forget the exact context—but she's asking a friend, basically, "Do you think the relationship could work?" And her friend answers in this really wise way: "Well, of course, as long as you don't expect it to make you happy." Do you anybody read that article? And that's such a great line. It's like, "Oh yeah." this relationship could work as long as we're not neurotically expecting it to do something it can't do. And that's generally true for the whole world. Like, can I have a decent life? Yeah. As long as we're not expecting the conditions of our life to make us happy, we can have a good life. But if we're neurotically expecting the weather, our partners, our own health, or any other aspect of our experience to make us happy, then we're going to be constantly disappointed and tight. Because even when it is what we want, we're tight because we don't want it to change. So we're always going to have a tight relationship with life, with experience. So she says for the third noble truth, you know, there is the experience of freedom. There is freedom in relationship. She says it's the inability to create safety that plots the path to love, or you could say probably release. It's the inability to create safety that plots the path to love. So when we realize, like in terms of intimate relationships, partnerships, deep friendships, close family members, our dogs and cats, birds, (laughs) or whatever, hamsters... (laughs) local squirrels and cardinals. When we're not expecting some predictable, safe experience, we might realize what we call intimacy or love or moments of freedom in relationship, in relationship to Dhamma, the way it is, as well as in relationship to an individual or to a person, yeah. Uh, it uh, it's the inability to create safety that plots the path to love. Plots. P-L-O-T-S. Plots the path to love. So it's the heart realizing it's not about safety. Doesn't that bring to mind, some of you I'm sure have seen that quote. There's a couple of quotes from Helen Keller, um, that wonderful wise woman who had um, deafness and blindness and was mute for a long time. Um, And she has a couple quotes that are often quoted, or statements that are often quoted about how life is either a daring adventure or nothing. There's no security to be found in life. It's either a daring adventure or nothing. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. That's a rough paraphrase. But it's really true in relationship. If we're expecting safety, then we're going to suffer. When we put that down, then it could be something really amazing. And this is why often, you know, some of our moments of real freedom in relationship are somebody, you know, sort of these chance encounters where there was never the expectation that this person was going to take care of me or deliver something to me. We didn't relate long enough. To sort of start con- conniving about what I can get, with this, how this person can fix me or take care of me or whatever. And then the last noble truth is there's a way, right? So, the, in terms of the traditional teachings, the Buddha says so. There's a cause. I mean, there's there is the experience of stress. There's a cause for it. Doesn't arise magically. When that cause is abandoned, there's release. There's freedom. There's nibbana. The cessation of dukkha. And there's a way of living, way of relating that leads to that freedom. So she says, it is possible to work with the uncertainty skillfully. So when we realize that moment of not expecting safety, we put down that wrong view of relationship. So we're just in the free movement of giving and receiving, that play of giving and receiving. And remember, that's not perfect. So when we're in that circle or that movement of giving and receiving, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all my conditioned tendencies from culture, from genetics, have ceased and there's just perfect, angelic tendencies manifesting. No, it's still the same conditioned personality. The freedom isn't in the perfection of what I say or don't say or my body language or whatever the freedom is in the not under not in the not misunderstanding what that movement is of relating with another human being let's say so it doesn't mean it was perfect you said the right thing i said the right thing it means that it was perfectly free a perfectly free movement of action words thoughts actions playing together. And part of that perfection is because we weren't busy, the, our minds weren't busy, or my mind at least, because it doesn't de- depend on the other person having freedom. Right? We can have moment a moment of freedom even when the other person is really caught in some reaction, identified with some reaction. But there's also perfect learning. Because we're not trying to control the moment of relating then the mind is just there in awareness. Steady, clear, forgiving, kind presence. And so it's in that perfect position to learn about what's at play and the relative skillfulness or unskillfulness of that play, that interaction that's happening. So then when you think about your moments of freedom... In relationships and moments of feeling really bound up or tight or suffering in relationship, you know and then you can think about these four you know relationships are uncomfortable, there's a cause, expecting something from the relationship that's not appropriate, and when that expectation is abandoned, and there's just the movement of nature, right because our personality is nature. And their personality is nature. And nature knows how to move. But part of the nature that's at play here is a thought or a very persistent thought or idea that I have to control this movement of nature to get what I think I need, safety. And that gums it up. That creates friction, which we call suffering or stress. So when that wrong idea is abandoned, and there's a moment of free giving and receiving in relationship. Then the path becomes clearer, which is sila samadhi panya. So this commitment to not harming. So what does that look like in relationship? Like right? basically, I think what the Buddha means by sila is don't believe the idea that being aggressive or any kind of action that we now recognize in this moment is the intention is to harm, to get tight, don't believe it's functional or useful. Because that's the problem, is that we justify harm. Just think about how good we are at justifying harm. We do it all the time. And it makes sense. I mean, these are the kind of debates that goes on go on all the time. Collateral damage, for example. We justify harm. We justify harm in our consumerism. You know, well, I need that. I need that to be comfortable. I know there's a cost, but we feel justified. I'm not, I don't know where to draw the line either, but it's just interesting how we can justify harm. So sila is like really creating uh, a pause whenever the harm is involved. Are we sure? because it's going against this value of non-harming. Are we sure we want to do this? And then steadiness of samadhi. So like in relationship, that uh, it's I think another word like in terms of samadhi in relationship is commitment or engagement. Like the, when in doubt, be steady in the engagement because that's where you're going to learn. Instead of like, I can't handle this. And then the the third is Panya, right view. So this is remembering the idea, it's just nature. Because then we can be more forgiving for what we see coming out of our mouths and the actions that we're acting out and the actions that they're acting out and words that they're saying. Because we understand This is the lawful expression of causes and conditions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.